You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 628 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland. It is Thursday evening, and joining me for part four of our part, I guess of our five-part, I should say, series previewing players and positions and all kinds of stuff about this roster, Jeff Siegel's here. What's up, man? I'm, uh, I'm doing. I'm doing uh, as bad as well as I can. <laughs> you seem fired up for the season. I know I am as well. Um, in fact, as, as we talk here, you know, it's about you know almost 9 p.m. on Thursday night Eastern time. Uh, tomorrow, Friday is kind of the unofficial start of the season, at least for me, because, you know, Media Day in all its glory is on Monday, where we'll have the opportunity to talk to all the players, but um, the Hawks are doing a uh, an availability with Lloyd Pierce and Travis Schlenk on Friday, which means, uh, yeah, it's kind of happening beginning tomorrow, for me anyway, and uh, I'm ready to go on that, and I guess number one on the agenda is figuring out whether Cam Reddish is healthy or not, but uh, we'll get to that later, and by the way, if anybody missed that podcast and the other previous ones, Jeff and I have been talking about each position group, at least a rough position group. The last one was small forwards, which was DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish, etc. Um, before that, power forwards, lots of John Collins and Jabari Parker talk. And the first one was uh, about centers with Alex Lennon, Bruno Fernando, Damian Jones, etc. So go back, listen to those podcasts. I really appreciate all of that. But today on the agenda is the shooting guards. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting in some ways. Not... Uh, not a ton of intrigue at the top because we know it's going to be Kevin Herter as the uh, main piece, but there's some uh, there's some jockeying for position beyond that. Um, I guess before we get into the guys who probably matter on this, honestly on this list, there are two camp invites that we have to at least briefly discuss to keep up with our previous trend of Marcus Derrickson and uh, and Ray Spalding. But um, at shooting guard, it's Taj McCall, summer league favorite. And Armani Brooks, who the Hawks signed kind of out of nowhere um, in a rare one where they didn't even actually have anybody break that news. It kind of just was announced by the Hawks. Um, I'll let you choose which one you want to talk about first. But uh, anything to watch with those uh, gentlemen as they are on, on Exhibit 10 contracts? I mean, I think McCall has a clearer path to making the roster, if only because the skill that he needs to make the roster is something that you can very easily measure. You know, like Brooks... He's a shooter, like we know he's a shooter, but that's all that we know about him. And so if he's going to bring enough to the table, either offensively or, or you, know, hope, you know, hopefully for them defensively, it's harder to measure like how much better he's gotten in the last six months defensively. Whereas like if McCall goes out there and shoots 35% from three instead of 29%, like that's measurable. We can They'll be able to see that both in the, the practice stats that they probably keep uh, and in preseason, and all of a sudden, if he's shooting 35% on decent volume, that's a real player that they can really rely on. So, you know, I think McCall, certainly from a skill set perspective, maybe is sort of just equal to Brooks, and McCall is probably better defensively than Brooks is at anything. But if but if McCall is going to make the roster, I think it's because he shoots the ball really well and brings that defense to the table. And they can just, they can measure that a lot easier. It's a lot easier to understand, oh yeah, McCall can shoot the ball now. So I think that's where he, you know, probably has a little bit of a leg up in the, uh, in the competition if they're going to make one. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, the Hawks clearly saw McCall up close and personal at Summer League. Um, good friend of the program, Graham Chapel, wrote a, lo- a long thing about Taj McCall after Summer League that I would recommend reading if you were interested in him. But I was there in Las Vegas, talked to him several times. I enjoyed him. He plays very hard. He defends. Um, the jump shot is uh, not great. So that's, you know, if, if you're 6'8", and you're someone who plays with the way that he plays and defends like a crazy person. The shooting is a little bit less um, critical, but McCall is about 6'4", 6'5". He kind of needs to make shots at some at some point, and I'm not sure that that guy is uh, going to be able to do that. I do like him. It'll be easy to root for him. Uh, Brooks, you know, he's more of a combo guard, 6'3". Um, didn't, you know, he was not really on my radar a ton in the pre-draft process. I do remember watching him at Houston, and I watched him a little bit. After the Hawks sign him, I think of all the guys on the on the invite list, he's probably the least likely to make the roster. Um, that's just anecdotal. That's not me saying anything that I've heard from the Hawks. But you know, big picture, I still think that Ray Spalding is the most likely to make the roster. If you have to pick one from the for the guys who are camp invites, still wouldn't project him to make the roster. But do you agree with me on that? Is Ray Spalding number number one on the list for you of guys that are not already on the roster? Uh, yeah, probably. If only because. Like they're not a hundred percent sure, sort of what the what the health situation is going to be like. Like Damian Jones is not somebody who has been able to stay healthy that uh, that much over his career, and and the center minutes are up in the air. With if Jones is not healthy, then it's just Bruno Fernando and Alex Len. Bruno's a rookie. Alex Len has never played more than like 22, 23 minutes a game, so it's not like he's somebody who's going to eat up thirty minutes. You don't know that he's going to be able to do that. Um, so if they were going to to carry a fourth center. You know, I think Spalding makes makes the most sense, certainly, because he's already sort of in the organization. And at these other positions, like we're going to talk about, you know, these two shooting guards, there's already three sort of more established shooting guards on the team. Derrickson is in, you know, on in the same situation where the power forwards are very established with John Collins, Jabari Parker, Evan Turner, if you count him, you know, there's there's lots to to there would be a lot of guys to beat out if there if uh if Derrickson is going to play, whereas Spalding has an easier path and just sort of my own opinion, he's probably the best player in a vacuum of, of the guys who are being invited to camp. Yeah, I think Spalding's the best player. That's most of the reason why I believe he has the closest path. But even then, you know, we talked plenty about these guys, so go back and listen to the previous podcast if you want any more about them. Um, all right, that's plenty, I think, on the training camp invites for now, and we'll cover them as we need to throughout the next couple of weeks until preseason is going and all that fun stuff. But um, first on the agenda, and I've gone back and forth on this, this is not really an assessment that I'm making. Um, I want to talk about Alan Crabb first. Um, it's basically, you know, Crabb and DeAndre Bembry, um, and then Kevin Herter will do last on this podcast. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put Crabb at the, at the beginning, um, if only because he is the new addition to the roster. Um, veteran guy. You know, more established than Membry in terms of an NBA player, played a lot more minutes than Membry in his career, et cetera, et cetera. But Crab is the uh, is the new addition in terms of arriving in Atlanta. He's a 27 year old shooting guard. For people that don't know his work, previously uh, spent time with Portland and Brooklyn. Um, just for the record, Crab has a, a DUI charge that's pending in California that he's dealing with. Um, I don't know too much particulars about that. We wrote about it a little bit when it happened uh, over the summer, and uh, there was, I guess, a a new, I guess, list of charges that came out. Um, um, I guess what last week for Crab. I don't know anything about that in terms of just of, of discipline. I'm just saying it off the top to say that I don't know anything else about that. Uh, Jeff's more of a lawyer lawyer type than I am, but uh, I have no I have no inside knowledge or thoughts on the on that whatsoever. I think that he'll be able to play, um, but that's kind of all I got on that. 
yeah, I don't have any specific information about that past what we what we've known publicly is just he was charged. We'll see, you know, sort of how things how things you know go from here. What whether the NBA steps in at some point. I mean, certainly the Hawks are are no stranger to DUI charges uh, over the last few years between uh, Mike Budenholzer and then Tyler Dorsey and maybe at least one other one. Um, and then, of course, the Dennis Schroeder thing, which is, I think, still pending, uh, even though he's been traded to Oklahoma City. He still has that uh, perhaps a felony charge. I think it's been it was recommended to be upgraded to a felony charge. Yeah, that kind of that kind of disappeared. Charges were ever filed. That kind of that kind of got, got quiet in a hurry, which was uh, yeah. Always I think somebody stepped in and, and maybe handled that for him, but of course, I don't know that. I'm just yeah. Saying we we don't. That. I mean, overarching thing, we don't know. And for the record, Crab was still a member of the Nets when the incident happened, which means the Hawks did not talk about that at all at the time because they couldn't. He had, the trade had not had, had not gone through to that point in time, so Crab was still a member of the Nets. Now he's of course on the Hawks roster, but um, as of now, that's all we'll talk about in terms of that. Um, Basketball-wise, Alan Crabb um, is known for exactly one thing, and that it is that he's a three-point shooter. In his career, 39% from three. Uh, even last year in what was definitely a down season for him in Brooklyn, he shot 38% from three. That was the only thing that he did well last year, basically, on the basketball court was shoot threes. But, you know, 27 years old, 6'6", shooting guard, and definitely a shooting guard type. Not, not a great defender by any means, just a, uh, a, a shooting specialist. And, but someone who has played a lot of NBA minutes and a lot of, um, I would say, high-profile minutes. You know, he was a rotation guy for Portland on some playoff-level teams. He was a full-time starter in Brooklyn two years ago. Last year, more of a part-time guy, and then had some injury issues. But Crab has been someone who's been around and in our lives for a while, but now he's, now he's going to be in our Hawks life. What do you make of him? Because, um, I guess, for me... What I find interesting about Crab is that he was acquired as a player that really wasn't acquired um, to be a player. I, I, I do think that he is a rotation-quality NBA player, but the trade with Brooklyn was essentially to get um, draft draft capital back from the Nets. He was he was traded as a dead salary, or, or maybe not a fully dead salary, obviously, but a largely dead salary. Um, the, the Nets wanted to get, get off his salary in order to open up the space that eventually became Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. And uh, the Hawks acquired him along with a first-round pick in that combo deal with Torian Prince. And from what you and I talked about at the time, we're basically treating this as if the Hawks got a first-round pick for Torian Prince, and they also got a first-round pick for taking on Alan Crabb. So with that said, we don't really know how the Hawks feel about Alan Crabb as a player. You know, most guys on this roster, basically the guys on the roster that we don't know how they feel about are Crabb, Chandler Parsons, and Damian Jones. Because those guys were all part of trades that were very interesting trades. Parsons was a combination trade that was all dead salary, all bad salary, and sort of a consolidation. Jones, they might have liked, because Travis like used to be in Golden State, etc. But that was also a deal that could be viewed through the prism of getting off of Amari Spellman and getting a future pick from Golden State. And then, of course, Crab acquired as part of that pick. So, all that to say, there's some mystery about whether the Hawks want to play Alan Crab. At the same time, he does have a skill set that they're going to need. So, uh, what do you what do you make of the whole situation? Because uh, yeah, there's there's kind of a lot going on here, even though it's under the radar. Yeah, I mean, I think the the most interesting thing is how they've sort of talked about the guys that they've brought in uh, via trade with these sort of the, these bigger salaries. You know, Parsons was brought in, and there weren't there there wasn't a whole lot of talk about like what he can bring to the table. It was really just a trade to, to free up a roster spot by trading two for one. They, they opened a roster spot. The thing with Alan Crabb 
They didn't make a whole lot of comments about like what they thought he brings to the table. It was really just a, a salary cap draft compensation based move. And then they do the the uh, Kent Bazemore Evan Turner trade. And everything about that trade was like, well, we, we think Evan Turner can handle the ball. We think Evan Turner can be our backup point guard. There was a whole lot of like what Evan Turner can do as a basketball player. And there wasn't a whole lot of like what Parsons and Crab can do, which would make you think that perhaps those guys aren't necessarily in their plans for, for the present or the future. Um, I mean, I think Crab probably should be in their plans. I mean, he does... He shoots about as well as anybody on the roster. Like, I would put him up against Vince and, and Kevin Herter as, as the best shooter on the roster. I think he's really, really good at that. And he can shoot off of movement, and you have to guard him. And I think that's something that the second unit in particular, led by, you know, Jabari Parker, perhaps, or, or Evan Turner, or both, that's something that the second unit is going to need in a big way. You know, you, you play those two guys, and you're going to have a lot of non, a, a lack of space on the floor, which I think is going to necessitate them playing shooters around those guys and that's where crab can really you know that's his big thing is that he can shoot and i mean he can like he's not just like oh he can shoot the same way you know the same way even like we talked about chandler parsons chandler parsons can space the floor alan crab can shoot the ball like he is somebody that you have to be in his jersey or he's going to make it and it's just you know his his 17-18 year, which was really his last year that he was fully healthy, last year was a little bit weird uh, for 2018-19. He just he never was healthy throughout most of that year, and so it's it's hard to to it's hard to judge him too much on that. But in the 17-18 year, I mean, he was 88th percentile in the league on catch and shoot jumpers, 90th percentile on unguarded catch and shoot jumpers. You just have to be right next to this guy in order to to take him away. He was 71st percentile in terms of efficiency on on coming off of screens both to his right, to his left, curling around and getting into the lane, going straight and, and taking that three-point shot. He was the 71st percentile in just efficiency. He was one of only four guys that whole year to take more than 200 off-screen jumpers. Clay Thompson, Paul George, Bradley Beal, and Alan Crabb were the four guys who took more than 200 off-screen jump shots in, in 2017-18. Like, this guy is an elite shooter at elite volume, shot 40% on those on those about 226 shots i believe it was he's an elite shooter like not he's he's like he might not be quite at that same level as like buddy healed who's you know getting talked about as a max player but he's right there i mean if he's healthy of course if he's healthy he's really really valuable and i think you know that that sort of that high level of shooting is something that this hawks team could definitely use yeah i mean as i said before crab is kind of a one-trick pony that's pretty much all he does well on a basketball court which but, is fine because yeah. like if you had to have one trick that's a that's the trick to have yeah particularly you know? as a shooting guard in the way that he is like there's real value in that um you know he can be he can be exploited defensively he's not great there by any means and doesn't bring a ton else offensively but particularly if you if you assume that the hawks will play second units together like you know mostly second units and you're playing alongside guys like turner and a center and Jabari Parker, you could certainly make the argument that Crab is very needed in that alignment in terms of just providing a shooting element. Um, all the reserves, you know, if you, if you remove Kevin Herter from the equation, I'm not sure how much Vince Carter is going to play. And every other backup, there's not a lot of great shooters. There's there's guys who can capably shoot. Obviously, I think Cam Reddish can capably shoot once he gets there. Um, Chandler Parsons, as you mentioned before, I think Jabari is a capable shooter potentially. Um, and but that that's kind of it, like. 
Turner, we know we know Turner can't shoot. We know the backup centers probably can't shoot right away. Particularly um, Jones. Jones, we know we can't. We, we know he can't shoot. And Fernando's going to be a work in progress. So, you know, of all the bench guys, it's basically Carter and Crab that are real floor spacers. And I'm not sure Vince is going to play. So, that's the argument on behalf of Carter of Crab, I should say, playing in the rotation from moment one is that a he's just been there before. He's a competent veteran, and b he's just a dynamic shooter that you might need to space the floor because if you're playing a the way that we the way that we've uh, sort of assumed that they're going to be playing at least sometimes early in the season with Evan Turner as the primary initiator offensively, spacing is going to be at a premium, and they're going to need that guy, I think, on the court. Um, I guess on the flip side, what's the path for him not playing? Uh, I think I guess if, if if he plays the way he did last season again, it was a small sample size. He was he was banged up, but he was bad. Last season, that that has to be said out loud. His PER was seven point seven, true shooting fifty two percent. You know, a negative, basically a negative player across the board on all the advanced metrics. Crab was bad last season in Brooklyn, and I think that's it. Might be a one year outlier because the three or four pre- three or four previous seasons he was he was a competent rotation player and at least shot the ball well. But last season, if he's the guy who was last year, it's tough to play him because he doesn't really bring again much to the table anyway, but um, the overall package last year, you know, career high turnover rate, for instance, um, in addition to, you know, no, you know, not, not a lot of passing, not a lot of rebounding, all that, all that fun stuff. So is that the argument against him is that maybe he's just not very good anymore? I'm not sure we know that, but is it possible that he's just not very good? Yeah. I mean, certainly if these, if this health thing is not a one year blip or if he's just sort of has settled into being this sort of player that, that we saw last year, yeah, I mean that would be a problem for them. You know, certainly the the assist rate went up, or the the, the turnover rate went up, and the assist rate was actually at a career low. So it's not like he they That's were bad. giving him the ball and saying <laughs> go create something, and he just wasn't that good at it. He just was really bad. Um, you know, and his his usage rate was low. Like it wasn't so he didn't have the ball in his hands all that much, and yet he still turned the ball over a lot. So that's not great. You know, it's it's certainly if he is who he was last year and not like the last four years before that this like he's not going to be useful and he's just not going to play um if he can you know i think it's i think i would lean without knowing i would lean more toward the three years prior to that than than just last year but you know again we're gonna we definitely have to to see because certainly the last time we saw him he was really really bad yeah, I, I tend to be on that side as well, where I would trust the sample size. He's not old, you know. He's 27, and he just turned 27 in April, so he'll play the season basically at 27 years old. You know, it's not unprecedented that a guy could fall off a little bit around that age, but at the same time, it's not like he's 35 and you're and falling off. So I tend to project him as closer to the player he was before last season. But there is a way and an angle in which he's not very good, and if, if that happens. You know, the Hawks are going to be in some trouble in terms of floor spacing, but also they do have other options, and we'll talk about one of them in a second with with, with Bembry. But Crab, it's just really interesting to me, honestly. It's not a casual fan interest by any means because, again, he was acquired as sort of a throw-in piece of a trade involving two dra- two first-round draft picks and Torian Prince. He was, the, he was the throw-in there. He's not going to be a piece of the team moving forward. He's an expiring contract. There's some value potentially in trading him midseason if you, uh, as we talked about last time, I believe it was last time about Chandler Parsons, there's some value in having these contracts that are uh, of, of real size if the Hawks wanted to move um, some pieces um, during the season. He has an expiring contract that could be useful, but we just don't know a ton about how the Hawks want to use him. In theory, the shooting 
definitely brings some value when playing alongside guys that the Hawks have on the second unit. But, you know, with the starters, for instance, I'm not sure he can really play with Trey Young in the backcourt. Like, defensively, that's going to be a mess. Um, and, you know, we talked about, I guess, I believe you and I talked about this on, a lot, on the last podcast, but I'm not sure you can use him as anything but, if, but, anything but, a, but a pure shooting guard because if he's playing alongside Kevin Herter, you know, both those guys are not exactly physical right now on the wing. Um, I guess if you're trying to, you know, just put late game offense or come or playing from behind, that could be interesting as a as a sort of an all offense lineup. But he's basically he's not a terrible defender, but he's not very good. So he's almost a one way player that doesn't really create for himself. And uh, yeah, specialists are kind of hard to figure. Even if you ignore the other stuff, and for this for this podcast purposes, we can ignore the other stuff. There's just a lot of uncertainty with how they want to use him, how they can use him, and who's playing with him. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. I think playing him with the starters would would have to bump Herder to the three. Like he's not long enough and he's not strong enough to play the three. Herder's long enough was not strong enough last season. We'll see sort of where where Herder comes in from a strength perspective. I think we'll talk about him um, more in a bit. But his how he's developed from a strength perspective is going to be the uh, the most important thing for him coming into this year, particularly if they want to do some crab Herder stuff together. Um, you know, he's, he's not a good defender. He doesn't have, he is, I mean, he's absolutely is that one trick pony. Like you, like you talk about, he doesn't bring a whole lot else to the table, but you know, he does have that, you know, very high level shot. And, you know, if he can get back to, you know, being healthy enough to run around and, and draw defenders to him, you know, that's, that certainly is going to be very valuable for them offensively. Yes, yes, it is, and uh, we'll talk more about Crab in a second, actually, because we're going to get into DeAndre Bembry. But before we get to Bembry, uh, let's take a quick break, listen to a word from the old sponsors, and we'll be right back with more on the shooting guard position. All right, Jeff, we're back, and uh, in some ways, not perfectly, but in some ways, Bembry and Crab are basically exact opposites. Uh, Bembry has one glaring weakness on the basketball court, and it is the fact that he can't really shoot. Um, whereas Crab has one glaring strength on the basketball court, and it's that he can shoot. Um, now, that, that does not mean that Bembry's perfect otherwise, because he's not, but he's someone who has a little bit of creation ability, is a very good defender, in my opinion, but really does not shoot the ball very well. So, in a vacuum, you could, uh, I think it's reasonable to argue that Bembry could be better than Crab this season. I'm not sure I'd argue that, but you certainly could argue it in a vacuum. But there's some context required here as well. And that, um, you know, Bembry has one weakness that's really tough to play around. And with the way the Hawks have built this roster on the second unit, that might not be to his de- um, to his uh, support. Now, before I let you talk about Bembry for a second, um, there is one thing that we have to say, and we alluded to this earlier with uh, with Crab. With Bembry, we know that at least the head coach, Lloyd Pierce, likes Bembry. Um, he was very, very vocal in support of Bembry last season, um, both about his defense pretty much the entire way, and also the fact that he, uh, early in the season, was talking about Bembry as um, the only player on the team that could get to the rim off the dribble. Um, that, uh, that of course, changed when Trey Young started to attack the rim more and more, but um, in terms of dribble drive and athleticism and finishing, um, the Hawks have some belief in Bembry being able to do that and use his athleticism and burst to get by people. And he was, uh, it was good to see him play all last season. Um, in fact, he played all 82 games last season, just having him be healthy for the first time in his career. So we do know that about Lloyd Pierce liking Bembry. Uh, we do not know necessarily about how Travis Schlenk feels because Schlenk didn't draft 
Bembry, and uh, Bembry's going into the final season of his rookie deal. Uh, no extension talks that I'm aware of with Bembry, so I think it's going to be his um, his expiring contract, essentially, and uh, that throws a wrench into things as well. So um, with the Crab stuff we just talked about sort of as the backdrop here, what is Bembry's role? Because they're not necessarily going one-on-one for minutes because there's lots of other guys in the mix here between Reddish and, you know, maybe even Parsons and however you, however you want to talk about this. Um, these guys are definitely going to be competing to to some degree for minutes this year. Yeah, I mean, as much as I like him and as much as I sort of think that he can bring positive value to a team, Bembry's fit is just really difficult to see where what alignments make sense for him to play in. And I guess it would come down to how exactly he Lloyd Pierce is going to stagger the the starters with the backups and whether that's going to be a more sort of inter there's going to be more intermixing between those two or if it's going to be more of a, a platoon style thing. If it's more platoon style, I just don't see where Bembry is able to to get out there because if you're playing Turner, Parker and a center offensively, like you can't have DeAndre Bembry out there too. Like you're just never going to score. Yeah. You, you and, can't score that lineup. I don't, I mean, you could, I guess you could try to talk about how you could play a lineup. That's just, you know, get a bludgeon you on defense. But if that lineup includes Parker, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, that's it's tough to thing. do that. It's tough to make that argument. If you have a, a, a defined weakness on the court defensively, which you wouldn't know. It's lineup. almost like they shouldn't assign him, but well, that's a whole nother thing. Um, you know, hey, your butt, whatever. Uh, we don't need to get into that. We already spent an hour on that. No, we do not um, need to get into that today, no. That would be, uh, we'd be here all night, and we've already done that uh, in the last two weeks, so we don't need to get into Jabari Parker right now, but it's certainly his presence and the fact that they paid him what they paid him and gave him that very specific contract that they gave him uh, certainly makes Bembry's life a little bit more difficult because they seem to be somewhat committed to Parker, like, playing real minutes, but if he's playing and Turner's playing and you have Damian Jones or Bruno Fernando, like where, you know, how many non-shooters can you really put out there before you just don't have an offense? Um, so that's where Bembry's detriment comes in. You know, he's certainly best with the ball in his hands, but again, like if you have Parker and Turner, they also need the ball. You know, Parker's a good scorer. Turner's a better facilitator than Bembry is. Par- you know, so, you know, Bembry's a little bit of a, be- you know, the a little bit of the best of both worlds between those two guys in terms of his ability to score and, you know, play make for his teammates. Certainly his, his turnovers are, have been a, a big issue throughout his career. So that's also, you know, that's a problem. So it's not like he's overwhelmingly good as a playmaker that where he could take the ball out of Turner's hands. Cause he's, you know, he's not going to be as good there and he's not as good of a, of a scorer as Parker. So I don't know. I mean, like if, if you told me he played like half the games this year, and, and just didn't have a defined role through most of the year and played, you know, 600, 700 minutes, like, it wouldn't totally surprise me. Yeah, that that wouldn't absolutely stun me. One thing I wanted to say at some point on this podcast, so I'll just say it now, is that I think this, I think especially early in the season, we're going to see the Hawks play, like, 12 guys a lot, um, which is interesting. You know, L- Lloyd Pierce last year was willing to play, like, 11-man rotations on a pretty, a pretty regular basis, that number could even grow to 11 or 12, I think, this year, especially early on, because there are just so many different combinations. And as, we, as we've sort of been saying throughout this podcast, it's going to depend a lot on lineup construction. Like, Bembry and Crab, I mean, they're not, they're, they're not the only ones, but they're kind of specialists in their own way, and they have defined weaknesses. Same thing with Evan Turner. So if you want to mix and match, you know, there's no, there's no rule that 
Pierce has to play a second unit in full, for instance. If they wanted to play Trey Young um, with Bembry, that's a little bit interesting. You know, if they wanted to, for instance, have Trey start focusing more off the ball and maybe have Bembry on the court for some defense, and maybe you have to have Bembry guard and a poison point guard every once in a while. If they want to have, you know, if Hunter's not necessarily locked on that job just yet, maybe, the, you know, Bembry is probably the best defender on the team. In fact, he is the best defender on the team against small guards, I would say, pretty definitively. Um, that's a role that he definitely has, for instance. So it's, it's weird. Like it would not blow me away if Pierce was going to run a definitive 10 man rotation. If Bembry wasn't in it, that would not stun me, but I think that he's going to play 11 or 12 guys early on in the season because of the fact that they have these specialists because they have, um, some rookies that they're probably going to want to see whether they're ready or not, you know, with Reddish and Fernando, they're probably going to want to see those guys, you know, earlier rather than later, even if they're not ready. So there are a lot of different combinations, and Bembry's in a weird spot overall with the contract, but they know what he can do more so than most guys. Like he's kind of a player that's easy to, you know, not I would say not easy to build around, but also it's easy to play him knowing what he's going to do. That that may sound funny, but you know, the lack of shooting hurts you, but because you know he can't shoot and you know he can do everything else, basically it's easier to at least game plan for that in theory and have him play with Kevin Herter. Like if, if for, for, here's, here's, here's another one for you. If the Hawks go away from the Turner thing um, at some point, maybe as a primary look and maybe lean on what you've said a number of times about Kevin Herter, who we'll talk about later on the podcast as like a backup point guard type, maybe you play Herter and Bembry together in the backcourt. That makes some sense because yeah, that makes a ton of sense because Herter, you know, can have the ball in his hands and also space the floor memory can play defense and also handle the ball a little bit. And if you, if you put those guys together, it actually, you know, in theory makes a lot of sense. So there's combinations. And at the end of the day, basically all 14 guys that the Hawks have under contract are theoretical rotation level players in some form or fashion this season. If they are healthy, I think Chandler Parsons is like 14 to 14 right now in my mind because of the injuries and the fact that they have no reason to really prioritize him. But even Parsons probably can play if he's healthy. So they have a lot of decisions to make. I think, you know, the rookies are going to get prioritized with every good reason because this is a future-facing team. And Bembry, you know, people still think he's a young guy, and I guess that's technically true, but he's 25 years old, and he's going into an expiring contract season. So if you're looking to the future, I guess they might want to see him one more time, one more long look to see if they want to re-sign him after the season. But he isn't going to be treated like a rookie is going to be treated like if he's not producing, they're not going to play him in the way that they would with a true young player. So again, there's just a lot of factors in play. And I think he'll benefit early from the fact that they're going to play a lot of guys, but maybe at some point, you know, with injuries that will probably just take their toll anyway, at some point along the way. But you would think that by January, February, Pierce will sort of have zoned in on a rotation. That's a little bit more honed and it's not a lock that memories in it. He might be, but we just don't know that right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. I think it it depends on how the Evan Turner experiment goes. It depends on how the Jabari Parker stuff goes. Like, Bembry has, I mean, for me, I think he would be in my rotation, but certainly that would not, that would also not include other guys who are clearly going to be in the rotation, like Jabari. So, you know, that's where I kind of come from the, the this point of view of, like, you can build rotation you can build a rotation and lineups that have Bembry featured as a combo guard who can guard other teams point guards 
because they don't have anybody who can do that other than him, really, you know, depending on how DeAndre Hunter is able to do that immediately. So you can have him out there as in that role and then sort of just as like a slasher, whatever you can get out of him offensively. And I think that makes sense. But it's just about fitting in the rest of the guys around him. And certainly a, a lineup like Herder, Reddish, Vince Carter and Bruno Fernando, or even like Jabari Parker and Bruno Fernando, that can make some sense, but then that marginalizes Evan Turner because if if Trey's not on the floor and then Turner's not, like when does he get to play? So there's, you know, and the Trey-Evan Turner combination, you know, you can play those guys together a little bit if Trey is going to be willing to give up the ball a little bit more, but you you certainly would rather you know, surround Trey, give, give Trey the ball and let, and surround him with, with shooters, at least a little bit of shooters. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know where Turner fits if he's not out there without Trey Young. And if he's out there instead of Trey Young, then where does Bembry fit? So that's where Bembry's, uh, that's where Bembry's situation, you know, becomes a little bit more tenuous with the, with, in terms of playing time. And that's where if he ends up with, you know, 700, 1,000 minutes this year, it wouldn't totally surprise me from that perspective. Yeah, here's one for you real quick before we move on to Kevin Herter and the rest of the podcast. You know, we've sort of said it without explicitly saying it, but the fact that Evan Turner is on this team is not good news for DeAndre Bembry. Um, yeah. They're very, they're not identical, but they're very similar players. You know, Turner is definitely more, you know, bigger, physical, more of a like a 3-4 hybrid kind of player than Bembry is. But in terms of just their hypothetical role as like better better with the ball in their hands, defense first player that can't shoot, they have a lot of over a lot of overlap. So if the Hawks want to lean on Turner, that probably is not good news for Bembry, just because it's hard to have both those guys filling very similar roles um, when they both can't shoot. So, I mean, I guess on the bright side for Bembry, you're the young you're the young player. They have match rights on him beyond this season if they offer him a qualifying offer if he plays well um whereas Turner is almost certainly a one-year rental you know he's the veteran and Turner's a better player than memory is because of another a number of things I would say but you know it's just weird to me I I, I kind of felt bad for memory we might even discuss that at the time it was just the way that deal went down it was I guess it was good that they immediately wanted to talk about Turner as a backup point guard for memory but just realistically and all these pieces are very um, malleable they're just they do a lot of the same things well and a lot of the same thing a lot of the same things poorly and Turner is a veteran who seems to be having a clearer path to regular playing time yeah I mean and Turner's just better like it's just it's unfortunate for Bembry but it it just is what it is he's a better passer he's a he's a much better defender he's a much more valuable defender because of the positions that he defends uh you know at the three and the four rather than the one and the two you know, so I think that's where Bembry falls off. The you know the other part of that is you know they've got some guys who can defend the three and the four. You know, between Hunter and Reddish and Turner, you know Parker technically if he decides to play defense at some point in his career, uh, they've got some guys who can defend the forwards. Whereas they don't, they have nobody who could defend point guards like Hunter maybe, but he's also you know not really a traditional point guard. Yeah, they're of they're the two. That's one of Bembry's best roles, honestly. I think I said it before, but you know. He's if you if you tell me you have you know the last five minutes of a, of a basketball game and you're trying to defend you know pick your favorite point guard, Bembry is the best option on this roster to, to guard that guy. I, I can assure you of that right now today. Like he he just is. Yeah. Like I mean, maybe he, Hunter gets there, but right now today with what we know about these guys and the fact that Hunter's a rookie, Bembry is the best 
defender of guards on this roster. Yeah, and like just I mean, just the same way I was saying it wouldn't totally surprise me if he played seven hundred minutes a season. It also wouldn't surprise me if he closed like forty five games. Yeah, I mean, and, like, honestly, it wouldn't blow me away if he was a rotation beast the whole season long. Like it's kind of, I think we're trying to express that in a lot of ways, but you know, the the range of outcomes for Bembry is basically you know he becomes the twelfth man and only plays half the games, or he becomes a vital rotation piece on this team. And there's a real yeah. divide there. Like somebody asked me offline this week, you know, what happens if the Hawks decide that they, that they don't want to start DeAndre Hunter on opening night? And I said, well, that doesn't seem likely to me, but the Hawks haven't said they're going to start DeAndre Hunter on opening night. So in this theoretical world, who would they start at the three? And my answer was, my answer was Bembry. And I'm yeah. not sure that's real, but if you look at it, it does make some sense because if, again, if, you, if for some reason Hunter twists an ankle or whatever you want to say about Hunter and he's unavailable opening night, you need someone that can play defense at that spot because your other four starters are probably going to be average or below defenders. Bembry is the best defender available at that spot, unless you count Turner, who I don't think you would start given he's your backup point guard, supposedly. So that kind of illustrates the fact that you know, he might be one one injury away, too, from an even bigger role or one, you know, he's better than Cam Reddish right now on a basketball court, most likely. But Reddish, again, is going to get treated with, and by the way, he should, be the bigger priority. So there's just so much flexibility here. Am I crazy? Do you think it, Do you think if Hunter was just unavailable that they might start memory? Because I, I kind of think that they might do that just for the role. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think he's, that's why I would say that he's not a favorite at this point but like i would seriously consider him as part of the closing lineup in the same sort of sense of like if you need somebody who can defend the best point guards in the world and and there are quite a lot of them out there right now in terms of just point guards who run their team like trey young runs the hawks you need them you really do need Bembry out there and so i think he's you know if you if they closed with something like trey kevin herter Bembry. Hunter and Collins, if that was their closing five-man lineup, like that wouldn't surprise me. Like I think that makes sense as sort of their best, best of both worlds kind of lineup. If you know, assuming that Collins can tangibly play some center, and you know, and and that Hunter is strong enough to to play the four, you know, I think that might be their their best closing lineup at this point. So you know, yeah. it's it's weird that Bembry sort of could find himself out of the rotation altogether, or you know in there in literally like on the floor for their entire, you know, last five minutes of close games. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I, you sort of alluded to that for a second. This is the last thing we'll say about Ben before we get to Herter, but there, there are some switchy lineups that the Hawks could use and maybe offensively they wouldn't work fantastically. But if you believe that Hunter can play the four on, on defense and you want to go to a lineup that has, or maybe even reddish, if you want to go to a lineup that gets real switchy defensively, maybe with John Collins at the five, you could go do that pretty easily with like Herder, Herder, Bembry, the two rookies, and Collins. Like, that's pretty fun defensively. I mean, Collins is not necessarily great, as we've talked about a number of times, but if you want to just get real, real weird and switch everything and have a bunch of six, seven guys flying around on defense, that could be fun. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I would really enjoy that. I know the Hawks fans and, and maybe the Hawks management is kind of looking at that like that's not. Uh very interesting to them but i would be i'm I'd be all it's over more of a look a as a second unit like not necessarily a full-time thing clearly but if you wanted to as we talked about earlier not have a full second unit but more of a more of a stagger like if trey's off the court you're not gonna be great on offense anyway so maybe you just get physical 
and athletic and try to out-defense teams and maybe run a little bit and try to beat it that way because you're not going to be able to score in the half court regardless when Trey leaves the court. So why not try to play that kind of, not bully ball necessarily, but just a bunch of big switchable pieces and see see how that works for you. Even if it is Turner and Membry together, which we don't love offensively, if you play Turner and Membry together with Kevin Herter, DeAndre Hunter, and John Collins, that might be workable offensively. I'm not saying it's going to be good, but if you play those guys with three legitimate offensive players, that becomes a little bit more interesting. So, again, there's just lots of combinations. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to play that defensive lineup and just live in transition and just tell, like, John yeah. Collins and Andre Benbury, just run. And we're going to play offense in transition. And our half-four offense is going to be run the shot clock down and wait until Trey Young gets back in the game. And, like, that's not certainly something that I would want them to do full-time. But no. it, against certain you know against it's certain teams and in certain li- lineups i think that makes sense makes a lot of sense yeah it's a look so all that to say like you just gotta keep your mind open with this roster and that we've, we've been saying that the whole time honestly even going back to free agency like this is a very malleable roster that has a lot of uncertainty it's probably good uncertainty but just some combinations and stuff that we haven't seen before the last couple of years it's been more of a traditional roster this is not necessarily going to be the case particularly when a young leaves the floor so we'll talk about that more often but uh yeah, Bembry, a lot of a lot of possibilities. Crab is much more of a rigid piece, but again, his shooting could be very interesting as well. So, um, unless you have more to say on those two guys, we can we can get to the starting shooting guard. But uh, I'll I'll give you the last word if you want it. Yeah, I think I'm I'm good on on pretty much everybody that's not Kevin Herter on this podcast. We we sort of beat the Bembry thing to death, but it's just going to be super interesting to see exactly how, you know how his role shakes out this season. Yeah, it really is. Um, all right, let's go. Let's go to Herder, and we'll finish with this. Obviously, uh, Herder, you know the projected starter, the clear starter at shooting guard spot. Last year, he started 59 games after he sort of supplanted Ken Bazemore, who was injured and then bad, and some combination of both. Herder probably wasn't ready to start last year when he started starting, but then he really got better as the season went along. He got a very late start, a la Cam Reddish, last year because he missed most of the summer, missed summer league, all that fun stuff, and uh, famously struggled at training camp. But once he got going. He was obviously pretty impressive for the number 19 pick. He was an all-rookie guy, second-team all-rookie. He shot the ball very well, flashed the ball-handling skills that were underrated, I would say, during his college tenure. He's a pretty good passer. He's a pretty decent secondary creator, and obviously the shooting is uh, the calling card for Kevin at this point in time. You know, looking big picture, and then we'll drill down from here, um, is he just going to be 30 minutes a game, starting shooting guard this year. Like the last 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 year was 27 minutes a game. Um I think the only two guys who are definite 30 minute players on this team this year are the big two and Young and Collins, but you could certainly argue that Herder is in line for a workload that is uh similar to Young and Collins because he's just by far the best option. Yeah, I certainly think so. You know, unless there's something where he doesn't have either some something goes wrong with his conditioning or something goes wrong with his health. Like he should be a 28 to 30 minute a game guy. Uh, you know, he's clearly the best option, brings the best of, of all worlds to the, to the shooting guard spot can play in literally every combination that you can think of. Like there's not a, a five man combination or a four man combination outside of him that uh, would be worse with him on the floor. Like I, I think he's just, he fits so well with so many different lineups and so, and him plays so many different types of roles really well, can have the ball in his hands, can operate without the ball, can defend his position well enough for me to, to be fine with him. Like, I think 
and this might be something that people disagree with, but like of the big three, he's the best defender. Um, you know, and I, I, I think some people would, would think that Collins is better, but he's really not. Like, I think Herter can defend his position better than, than either one of the other two guys in, in sort of the Hawks big three right now. And so, you know, I, I think he's, he can play so many different roles and with so many different other people that I do think that he's sort of a, a lock for being, you know, a 28 to 30 minute a game guy. Yeah. I mean, as long as he stays healthy, there's no reason that he wouldn't play, you know, 2,500 minutes, something like that this season. Last year was a little bit over 2,000 in 75 games. And again, for the first couple of months, he wasn't a full, full-time, you know, starting level player in terms of workload. So yeah, that's a, seems like a safe bet. Um, you mentioned defense. Let's go there first. I tend to agree with you. I think Herter is the safest bet of the three of those guys to be a solid defender. I think Collins has more upside just physically, athletically than Herter does defensively. But Herter is already closest. At least he was last year. I would argue Herter was the closest to league average at his position. You know, Collins late in the year, as we discussed ad nauseum, was much better. Um, that gives you optimism for the future. But Herter, I think. At his age, he overachieved where I thought he was going to be as a rookie, to be sure. You know, he doesn't he doesn't have great tools necessarily, but he's a pretty good athlete. He's going to have to get stronger. Something I was going to say later, but I'll go ahead and say it now. Herter, perhaps his biggest weakness last year on both ends of the floor was just that he was physically weak. He's going to have to get stronger. He knows that. The team knows that. They've talked about it a lot. But, um, you know... He, he was young, he was a rookie, and again, he couldn't, he couldn't really lift weights, couldn't really get stronger necessarily a ton in his first rookie summer. I would hope it was an emphasis over the summer for to have Herter put some muscle on, get more physical, because it showed up in his, in his lack of finishing at the rim and his lack of getting to the free throw line offensively and defensively. He was often in the right place, which is a good starting point. Um, but he just wasn't physical enough to hold off his position a lot of the time. So that's the biggest thing in terms of things to watch for Herter because we know he can shoot. We know he's going to be able to score. Um, he can create some offensively. But for me, it's just getting stronger helps him everywhere. And I'm assuming it's going to happen. He's going to fill out some. What do you make of his defense, though, for this season only? Because is average a realistic comp, a realistic expectation for him, just be average defensively? Or is it better than that, worse than that? Kind of how do you see him defensively this year? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think average is within his range of outcomes. It's probably not like his expected or like his 50th percentile outcome. You know, that might be slightly below average, but he's certainly within, you know, the the, the normal range of outcomes. He can be an average defender this year. And, you know, I think it's it comes back to like he's longer than you would expect to, to him to be like you just sort of think like, oh, he's a six, seven shooting guard. But he's he's got some length on the perimeter and it's not that shows up when he needs to, when he needs it to, I think it shows up in, in a big way. And so I think that's where that's his calling card defensively is that he's just long and he's smart and he knows where to be. Certainly the strength is, is the biggest problem for him. And like, you know, like you said, he's just got to be stronger on that front. Like it's just, there's nothing else for him. There's no other way to sort of mitigate that. He's just got to be able to bang with, with guys. And, and certainly if he can increase his strength, that, would help them in bumping him up to play the three every once in a while. That would certainly help get, you know, Alan Crabb and DeAndre Bembry on the floor a little bit more often. If he can play a little bit more three, I'm not sure that that's a realistic expectation for him this year, but it's possible that he can play some three and against some smaller lineups from other teams, you know, especially teams, you know, I just, I always assume, I always think about Dallas as a team that likes to play two point guards. If they're playing two point guards and a, and a smaller guy at the, 
small forward spot. If one of those point guards has to technically be a shooting guard, then that's where you can get away with Herter at the, at the small forward spot as well. And so I think that's, that's where he can play defensively, but certainly just sort of from an overall value sense, he's, I think he's, you know, right, right there below, just below average. And, and it it's certainly within his range of outcomes for him to be an average defender this year. Yeah, I agree. Almost across the board there. You know, he's a neutral wingspan guy, at least at the combine, but at the same time, a typical shooting guard in the NBA right now is not 6'7". Like, he's a legit 6'7 in shoes, and that is much, much taller than an average shooting guard size in 2019. Um, most guys that are that height are playing the three um, around the league at this point in time. So while he's not like a super long arm freak like that, he is longer than your average shooting guard because of the fact that he just has that, that he has that height. And I think he, I think he covers a decent amount of ground as well. He's always been an underrated athlete. Um, we'll make the underrated white athlete joke right now, but he is a good athlete. He's not, a, he's not an elite athlete by any means, but he's a good athlete. He can shoot it. Obviously that's his, again, it's still his biggest strength by far is his jump shot off the move, off the catch. He's just, a, he's a very good shooter already and has the potential to be a great shooter. So that's number one, number two, number three, all that stuff with Herter is, is a jump shot. But defensively, I think he's going to be fine. I mean, is he going to be a game changer? No, but that's why you have DeAndre Hunter. And that's, you know, you, they're hoping that Hunter is going to be the game changer and Herter will just be a guy who holds up on his position and is just fine. And that's all you need him to be. Um, you know, the bigger question is his backcourt mate defensively. And we'll talk about that later when we get to point guards. But I think Herter being good this year would not be a surprise to me. You know, I got a lot of people asking me, you know, preseason when all these top hunter lists are coming out, like how close is Kevin Herter to these lists? And my stock answer is it wouldn't surprise me if he was in the 90s or something next year. Like, I'm not, he's not going to be a star, I don't think, but I do think that Kevin Herter, as a projection looking ahead beyond this season, I think Kevin Herter projects as a strongly above average starter. Like, is he going to be. You know, a top 50 player in the league. I, I don't think so. It's not impossible, but I do think that we'll be talking about him as a good starter for a long time. And that's just a player that you can clearly build around because he's still 21. Like he's very, very young, despite being someone who wasn't a, a huge pedigree prospect necessarily before he went to Maryland, but he's still 21. Like he's not, I'm pretty sure I'm looking now. I think he's younger than Hunter. If they're not, if he's not younger than Hunter, they're pretty much the same age. So, yeah, it's just worth keeping that in mind too. He's not a. This is not someone who is. It's not like Bembry who is twenty five already. Herder Herder is young and will be getting better and getting stronger and doing all that doing all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think his ceiling is probably higher than than like a top fifty you know player ranking across the league, but it's not like much higher than that. And certainly his you know he, I think his like fiftieth percentile outcome might not see him get into that top fifty. You know, certainly no. like top seventy five would make yeah. sense. You know, I think, that's I where think three I could... years from now, we'll be talking about, you know, when you and I are prepping to talk to, to talk and write about these top hundred lists, we're going to be assuming he's on them now, yeah. not like top 40, but somewhere in that range where you see guys now who are, you're like, Oh, that guy's good. Like somewhere in the eighties or nineties would be where I would project him to just kind of live. And he certainly has upside beyond that. And by the way, just because I checked, um, Kevin Herter is eight. Sorry. Yeah. More than eight months younger than the, than the Hunter is. Just keep that in mind. Yeah, I mean that's certainly why teams like to to draft younger guys, and that's why Hunter, you know, took a fall in some you know some other uh, people's boards is that he just doesn't have that that long term athletic upside. 
that uh, that younger guys have. I don't, you know, I'm not somebody who puts a, as much stock into that as a lot of other people do, but it certainly was one of the the major criticisms for for Hunter being, you know, being one of those top five picks is just that the uh, the high end athletic upside, you know, might not not might not quite be there. Yeah. Um. But back back to Herder, I I just think that, you know, for this year it's interesting because there's no all sophomore team, so it's like those guys always get discussed a little <laughs> bit less, especially the uh, the non star players. You know, there'll be plenty of attention on Trey Young and his all star pursuit and all that stuff. Whereas there's not really a definitive pursuit for Kevin Herder to have like league wide. It was just more about him being good. You know, efficiency wise, he wasn't overwhelming last year. Um. 53% true shooting. I have to think that that's probably going to go up this year. My number one thing for him offensively, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, but he's got to get to the line more. And that goes back to the strength thing. But when you're as good of a shooter as he is, there's no reason why you shouldn't be trying to get to the line, particularly because he has an off-ball game. This is this is not Kyle Korver as a catch-and-shoot, all-I'm-going-to-do-is-shoot-threes kind of guy. Herter is an obvious knockdown shooter, but he's someone who's going to have the ball in his hands more as a creator who can get to the rim and be effective in that way. And the next step for him offensively, beyond just being an elite shooter, is getting to the line and getting easy buckets. Yeah, I think that would certainly expand his offensive game a lot more. You know, I think that... Uh... I'm not sure that that's capable. I'm not sure he's going to be capable of that this season, but we're going to know really early if he is like, I think within the first two weeks, we're going to see how he's sort of built and we're going to understand like, Oh, this guy is, is put in a lot of work on the off season in terms of, of getting stronger and will be able to bounce off guys and get to the rim. Uh, and until we see it, I can, you know, it's hard to, to speculate that it's going to be there, but it's, uh, it's certainly something that I would, uh, maybe I don't necessarily expect it, but it's, it's something that we'll see, you know, very early in the year. I think the biggest thing for me that I'm going to be watching is, is sort of just how he reads the game and his vision and, and playmaking skills. You know, I think he, he's somebody that I, you know, I wrote a whole thing at Peachtree Hoops about how I wanted him to be the backup point guard for them after Jeremy Lin was, was released. You know, I thought that he could just take over that role and they didn't give that role to him. I think they, you know, had a better understanding of his playmaking acumen than I than than I did at the time. And I think that's why he uh, didn't get that role. But I would love to see him get a little bit more time with the ball in his hands as the primary guy next year. You know, in the in the lineups where Trey is not on the floor. You know, just to see what he can do in those spots. You know, is he a good secondary passer, or can he be the the engine of an offense you know especially the engine of a bench offense i think that's an answer that's a question that if the answer is yes he becomes much more valuable long term for their playoff you know their eventual playoff aspirations that's that that's a question that i would like to have the answer to sooner rather than later rather than trying to figure that out in a in a in a on a team that is very good figure it out now and see if he can do it you know, I, I think that's uh, that's what the Wizards did with Bradley Beal, and that worked. You know, that's what the Minnesota Timberwolves did with Zach Levine, and that worked to some extent. I mean, it Levine, made him better. I mean, it, it made him better offensively. Yes, it I, made I him better, that. and it didn't necessarily stunt the development of everybody else. Like Carl Anthony Towns is still Carl Anthony Towns, whether they gave Zach Levine a bunch of pick and roll point guards or uh, pick and roll possessions or not. You know, Andrew Wiggins is the reverse of that, where it didn't. <laughs> it didn't stunt his development into being terrible. So, no. you know, that's, that's, you know, I, I think that that that's the argument sometimes against it is like, what are the other four guys doing while this guy is getting all these pick and roll positions? But, you know, I, I don't know that if they play him, 
with, you know, Alan Crabb and DeAndre Bembry and Chandler Parsons and Bruno Fernando, like, or, you know, Damian Jones say, like, you're, you play him with a bunch of veterans and just give him the keys to the car and see what he can do. You know, that's something that I advocated for last year. Hopefully they'll do it a little bit more this year and, and perhaps the year after to just sort of see what they have in him as a, uh, as a primary playmaker. Yeah, I'm with you on this. I'm not sure you have to, you know, anoint him as your backup point guard necessarily, but it's more of that situation where even if he's playing with Turner or Bembry or whoever you want to say, letting Herder have a lot of work, you know, I believe as Nate Duncan would say, all you can eat kind of thing, um, kind of just let him cook a little bit on the second unit as a primary engine of it, even if he's playing alongside a quote-unquote backup point guard like Turner or something like that, i still like to see Herder be if not the only guy that's engineering the offense, a primary option, one of those primary options, that'd be good for his development. And also he might just be the better option. Um, even with Turner having more experience in that role, I still think I'd rather have Herder running my offense. Um, he's not, he's not quite the experience level, you know, playmaker that Turner is, but with his shooting, it's just a lot more dynamic potentially. So that's kind of where I'd go with yeah, that. Um, I mean, I think the, the shooting off the dribble, if he can like pull up with either hand in pick and roll, all of a sudden that becomes like, he doesn't even really need a whole lot else to like, he's already got the passing skill. He's tall, you know, especially if he's playing point guard, essentially like he's tall for, for what that position sort of usually looks like has, you know, has the passing. We saw a lot of that last year in secondary playmaking opportunities. If he can turn a lot of his primary playmaking opportunities into what look like secondary opportunities because the defense is all over him because of the, uh, the, the jump shot. And if he can shoot off the dribble, all of a sudden those passes become a whole lot easier. I mean, certainly Trey young benefited immensely from the fact that his reputation was that he could pull up from half court and it would go in that reputation. If, if Herder can sort of develop that reputation as an off the dribble shooter, that's going to make his life a whole lot easier as well. Yeah, I agree. That's something to watch for, uh, to be sure. A uh, couple of fun facts on Kevin Herter real quickly. Um, he was actually second on the team last year in total minutes behind Trey Young. He played more total minutes than John Collins because of Collins' late start. He played more than Membry, despite Membry playing all 82 games. He played more than Deadman, more than Bazemore, etc. That's something I wanted to point out just to say that that's not really normal, but it's a good thing that he was able to play that much as a rookie, and he actually played pretty well because going hand-in-hand hand with that, he had the second-best um, on-off splits in terms of the team performance. John Collins had the best. Uh, the, Col- the Hawks were the best when John Collins played. Uh, they were minus 1.4 points per possessions when Collins played. They were minus 2.2 per 100 with Kevin Herter on the court. And th- that may not seem like a lot, but for a 29-win team, that's pretty darn good. Um, when Herter left the court, they actually sunk to uh, their worst level. They were minus 8.6 per 100 whenever Herter was off the floor last year. There's a lot of noise in that. But the Hawks were still six and a half points better with him on the court than they were off it. So just keep that in mind. Um, he's going to help them. He just sort of greases his kids in a lot of different ways. His shooting is well documented, but just, you know, he's clearly the third banana. He's, he's not going to get a ton of attention necessarily, especially nationally. I think people locally know that he's been very good. But her taking a leap this year, I think he has probably the most room to jump of the top three guys. You know, Collins and Herter, I mean, sorry, Collins and Young are going to get some at least tangential, if not higher than that, all-star buzz, and Herter's just not going to get that. But in terms of just where they were, both statistically and overall, last year to this year, Herter's the guy that you would probably circle as someone who's going to make the biggest leap. 
I mean, maybe Collins' defense would be a different category of that, so maybe you factor that in. But I think Herter as an overall player has the lo- has the largest potential jump to make of those three guys. Yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, I think he's he's somebody who could elevate himself from you know well outside these top 100 lists, like not even on the the honorable mentions. Like he could elevate himself into like the mid sixties, if he, you know, can put a lot of this different stuff together, certainly that might be more of a multi-year process, but he's, he's got more upside to explore, even if his eventual ceiling is much lower than those other guys. For sure. Like I'm pulling up the top 100 list so people can have like some names to associate with what we're talking about on these top 100 lists. I'm using sports illustrated because I think it was, it was I think it was the best one that I've seen. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so. ESPN's, ESPN's list was terrible. Um, okay. Sure. I wasn't going to just come out there and say that. But I'll say yes, it. it was I'll awful. say it. I thought, I thought it was terrible. And uh, I know people that work there and I'm friends with some people that work there, but I thought it was awful. Um, and the good thing is about the ESPN list is that it wasn't one person. It wasn't like I could just like kill one person for it. It's this massive panel of people. So I'm not, shooting shit at anybody in particular but it was bad um but the SI list here's some guys that are on the SI top 100 list this year that I think Herter can very easily be better than within a year or two uh Terrence Ross uh Jared Allen Joe Harris uh DeJounte Murray Spencer Dinwiddie um Danny Green Jeff Teague yeah uh let's just I'm not saying all these. I'm not saying that he will be. Uh, Al Farouk Aminu is on this list. Just for people, just people, people comparison sake. There's obviously guys that are on this list that are in interesting points in their career. You know, Julius Randle is a guy on this list that I think I'd rather have heard of then for the next however long. Um, Montrez Harrell. There's guys on this list that Herder projects to be better than, in my opinion, Ricky Rubio, who I've always liked, but. Yeah, I mean, there's just guys on this list, and this Rob Mahoney, who I trust, and I think did a pretty good job with this list. But just as a comparison piece, I think a year from now, it would not surprise anyone if Herter was ahead of a lot of those guys on these lists. Yeah, I mean, certainly there were a few names in there that I was like, he's, he's probably not going to get there. I'm not saying uh, he yes, will, but... like, immediately. I'm just saying, like, comparison sake of guys who, you know, there are some veteran guys who are more established that you would want to just go win for you right now versus Kevin Herter, like Marcus Smart, for instance. Marcus Smart's yeah. not a sexy player, but his defense and, you know, all that stuff, he's in the 80s on this list. So is Andre Iguodala. Like, he's just a very different player. But guys that, you know, are probably aging out or whatever you want to say, like, I think I'd rather have, for this season alone, I'd rather have Jeff. I'd rather have Kevin Herter than Jeff Teague. And Jeff Teague is on this list. Yeah, I mean, that's such a... A weird they're, thing they're just like very different players, obviously, because but of the I, point guard thing. But yeah, and I, I and by the way, I like I, I'm actually pro Jeff Teague. I, I think Jeff Teague is still fine and probably underrated at this point. But yeah, it's just a comparison point to say, you know, who's <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not I'm not even going to say Kyle Kuzma. I'm not going to say it because I, <laughs> I made I made plenty of points about Kyle Kuzma in my life. But I, I could tell you with a certainty, if you ask me who I'd rather have for the next seven years, Herder or Kuzma, I'm taking Herder. Oh, of course. That would be a very controversial opinion outside of Atlanta, I'm sure. But uh, I mean, but that's like Kuzma. I yeah. I mean, there's done, no. There's we'll, no, we'll, we'll leave it no there for now. But uh, Kevin Herter better than Kyle Kuzma. You heard it here first. Um. Yes. Anyway. Both uh, now and future. <laughs> yes, now in the future, we will. Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's plenty for me on Kevin Herter. You know, again, he's tw- this is a 21 year old guy. He just he and by the way he just turned 21, uh, not even a month ago, like late August. So. A young, talented piece that's going to get overlooked nationally. Um, kind of on brand for the Hawks in a lot of ways because he's not going to get a ton of attention, but he's very good. People around the league really like Kevin Herter too, like diehard NBA people. 
are noticing Kevin Herter in a big way. And obviously, he's not quite on the same level as Young Collins. I'm, I'm fully aware of that. But Herter is someone who I think is going to be a part of this team for a long time. And uh, we'll see how it all goes. But I really like him. And I was too low, too low, low on him in the draft process. So um, we're, we're only a year out of that. And I'm, I'm already, I was already way too low. So uh, mea culpa on Kevin Yeah, Herter. I certainly was too. I certainly have the... Uh... The draft, I, I wrote his draft profile for us, and I'm pretty sure it had that line of like, basically, he's just a shooter. And it's like, but by, by November, it was like, nope, that was totally wrong. I mean, if you, uh, if you watched, if you watched him in college, he was kind of used as a shooter. He was kind of used in the role that people wanted to write him into, like that Corver role. That, that was, it was a very, very lazy comparison when he got to Atlanta. Like, this is the next Kyle Corver. And it's like, oh, I wonder if he's, I wonder if that's because he's white and 6'7. Um, but he was certainly used more as a specialist in college than he was, than you would think. But at the same time, we, we were all wrong. He definitely, yeah. I actually said during the draft process that I thought he was an underrated athlete and an underrated passer. And even then, I was too low on both, on both traits. He's more athletic than I thought he was, and he's a better creator than I thought he was even then. So, and defense and yeah, defensively, I mean, like he, he very much impressed me defensively last year. Again, yeah, not going like to be a great was, defender, but he was fine already. Like that's he was one of the best rookie defenders in the league last year. Like, I mean, by the end of know, the just, year, yeah, like he wasn't taking again. He wasn't taking. It wasn't like making a huge impact defensively, but at but six seven, if you just hold up, so, you know, that's yeah. Great. If you're just six seven, and you hold up. That's that's big, man. If you if you don't have to come yeah. off the court, particularly like looking long term, and if you're the Hawks, you're trying to build a you're trying to build a contender. If you have a guy who's six seven that you can't leave open and that can defend his position, that's a very simple thing. And her her can do more than that, by the way. I'm just saying, even if you're just sure. even, if you, even if you're just a shooter, if you can shoot and defend at six seven with real size, you can be on the court. And he does a lot more than that. So you're in a good spot. Yeah, I mean it, the. Is he? I mean, this is obviously incredibly early for this, Uh-oh. but it's going to be a thing because they can only they can only extend five year max contracts to two of their of these three guys, and like he won't get one. Kind of, I don't think he'll get one. I don't. I don't think, think Herter is going to be. Either, but like, it's not out of the realm of possibility. No, it's it's not. He's I, a max guy. It's not. It's not out of the realm by any means. I, I do think the saving grace, if you're the Hawks, is that I'm not sure the box score production is going to be there. Um, in the way that guys usually get paid off of, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think we obviously know that Young and Collins are going to have that production, whereas Herder, as a number three option offensively, essentially on this team, unless something crazy happens, he'll be the he'll be the third option. I don't even by year four, or I guess by year three when you talk about extensions, is he going to be averaging more than fifteen points a game? I'm not mm, sure. Yeah, so, and because you know, and I'm thinking about this through the prism of right now with guys like Jalen Brown, who he's like the guy who everyone's talking about right now in terms of a, a an extension candidate. Jalen Brown is just you know bigger and more physical than Kevin yeah. Herter. I, I think Kevin Herter has Certainly a much more intriguing offensive well. skill set, like not close. Yeah. Um. But defensively, Jalen Brown's upside is just a lot higher, just athletically. Yeah. So it's interesting, though. I'm with you. I, I would not be surprised if, you know, two years from now, you and I are on this podcast or somewhere else talking about, you know, do you, like, what do you offer Kevin Herter? And we're talking about $100 million. Yeah. That, that would not surprise me. But not at all. We'll see. 
we're, we're getting ahead we're getting ahead of ourselves but it's okay to get it's, it's okay every once in a while get, yeah. get out of yourself I mean, just just sort of pie in the sky like ceiling outcome for him you know has i mean he just the word the, the name that keeps popping into my head is bradley beal and like he's not on that level but he's not like his absolute ceiling is not super far below like where bradley beal is no i, I uh well, i tend yeah. to agree okay it's i mean it's it's the, his ceiling you said the absolute his absolute ceiling is not like super far below like the 25th best player in the world you know beals okay so i'm looking at this now and we're off the rails at this point but um beal beal was of course a higher draft pick he was a, he was a top five pick but rookie season versus rookie season they're pretty similar um Per 30, I mean, Beal score more points per 36 minutes, but efficiency-wise, they're fairly yeah. close. Her, Beal her, has her, the, yeah, Beal her has had a better that, true like, shooting. Individual scoring bump yeah, that I, probably will never have. I don't think Herter's ever going to average, you know, Beal average like 25 points a game last year. That's not going to happen, I don't think. But still, like, it's not, it's not crazy. I'm trying to think of a better comp. I'm, I can't think of one at the moment. But yeah, it's the individual scoring. That, slightly like, poor man's Brad Beal is a pretty good comparison. And Herter is, by the way, two inches taller than Beal is. But like, it's that it's the shooting, but also secondary playmaking aspect. There's probably someone else that I'm not thinking about. But you know, to your point, that's that's not crazy. I think that is an absolute and utter ceiling outcome. And by the way, Beal has basically hit his ceiling. That's worth noting too. Like, I think Beal. Last year's Beal is probably the best he'll ever be, in my opinion. Um, yeah, he was probably. incredible. Like he averaged 26, 26, 6, and 5 last year on good efficiency. That's incredible. Um, but still, Kevin Herter, you know, again, I'm not projecting him to be a star. That is an outcome that exists, I think, for him, though. Like, not a not a top 10 player star, but a top 25 player, like you said. That is yeah. within the realm of possibility. Um, I think more... Like you, more... He can be one of the... the the three core building blocks to a championship team. Like you need a top 10 guy and you need two guys from 11 to 30 usually to be yeah. like an absolute championship team. And that's and like, how this can Trae work. Young I mean, has that top 10 ceiling. Yep. John Collins has that top 30 ceiling and maybe yep. even some top 10 ceiling. If he get if the, if he gets to be really good defensively, but probably not, you know, probably he's more of like in that 11 to 30 range. And if Herder can get into the low end of that 11 to 30 range, like that's, that's a championship core. Yeah, or or you're building through a, a little bit different path where you're talking about, you know, Young and Collins being you know top ten and top twenty five, like you said, and then you have multiple top fifty guys, yeah, like Herder like and Hunter, Hunter and Reddish and right, Herder, that kind of thing, or whoever that's, else they sign. That's that's probably I think a more realistic path is having the top yeah. two guys be the top two guys, and then filling around them with multiple top seventy guys, like three four like three or four of those guys that are top sixty top top seventy pieces. That's more probably more realistic, but either way, I mean, Herter, you know, here, here's the final thing that I'll ask you. I still think even though Hunter was a top five pick, I think Herter is a better prospect than Hunter is. That might yeah. that might be seen as controversial in some circles, but I, I still think I, I would. And by the way, again, this is someone who is very high on Hunter. I had Hunter in the top five and people, most people didn't. Um, I still think Herter is a better prospect than Hunter is right now. I could be wrong about that. It's probably fairly close because I do like Hunter a, quite a bit. But that speaks to how much I like Herder at this point because I would yeah. I'd rather have him than Hunter, and that's kind of a crazy statement to say out loud for me. Like two years ago, if you told me I, I was gonna like 
Kevin Herter, the freshman at Maryland, more than DeAndre Hunter in the NBA, I would tell you that that was not going to be happening because I've always loved Hunter. But yeah, that's where I am now. I think Herter is my number yeah. three on this team. I think the Hunter, the the upside from Herter is just can be into yeah, I mean, like he can get into that you know maybe eleven to thirty range. Like maybe he can get into that. Probably you know at his you know sort of outcome ceiling, you know his his high end you know ceiling outcome I think can be. Somewhere between, I don't know, 25 and 50. But like, if you ever, if you told me that DeAndre Hunter could even get to like a top 50 level, like, I just don't, I'm not sure that he can even get there. Like, I'm not sure his ceiling is high enough to get to a top 50 level. But I do. also, like, his, he could, he could, like, I think you could pencil him into like 75th, like, almost automatically. Yeah. I, I think that Hunter has more upside than you, but I do understand what you're saying. I think. His offensive ceiling is just considerably lower than Herter's is. I think his defensive ceiling, yeah. though, is very high. Like, I'm looking, again, at top 50 lists right now um, from this year. And, like, he's more of in that – I don't know. I'm trying to think. There's not, like, there's not a great comp on this list that I'm looking at at the moment for what Hunter could be. Because they're just – most of these lists don't treat guys like that, like this. Yeah. He's like – I don't know. It's weird to me. But regardless, I'm, I'm trying to find a – perfect cop but i can't find one but anyway regardless I, I i think that offensively herder's ceiling is um probably definitively higher than hunter's Certainly obviously hunter's, de- hunter's defensive ceiling is a lot higher than, than herder's is yeah so sure. um it's kind of it's kind of whatever you want to say that you like in a, in a prospect but both guys on the bright side for the hawks both guys are legitimate two-way players you know herder there was some concern about that coming into the draft again not going to game change on the de- on defense, but we kind of already know, even after a year, that he's not a liability defensively, and that's that's a big thing. So right, and that's the most important thing, for sure. Like if you um, can, if you had five average defenders, you probably have like the tenth best defense in the league. Yeah, it's, I mean, and again, the Hawks aren't going to have that, <laughs> but uh, the Hawks are not going to have five average defenders because of the point guard. But uh, that'll never you, happen. But you can build a coherent defense if you don't have two bad defenders on it. Like if Trey Young is the only bad defender on your team, you can still build a solid defense. That is yeah. it's doable. You can't have two guys that are openly bad in your starting right. five. Which is the and, entire Collins conversation. Right. That's that's the thing about Collins and I mean, but a year ago, maybe even not even a year ago, maybe six months ago or less, like we were having a discussion about Herder too, like in, on draft night, yeah. I was like, "All right, well now they are now the three guys that Travis Schlenk has Travis Schlenk has drafted are all defensive liabilities, and now we've seen that that's, one of them is not, like one of them is definitively not, and the other one, I I I do have some optimism for John Collins at this point in time. So within a year, I went from, oh crap, all three of these guys can't defend to, one and a half of them. So that's yeah. progress. Yeah, for sure. I'll take it. Um. All right, Jeff. Well, we've talked and blathered on for a long, long time about these guys. Any final thoughts on shooting our position? Um, we, we've covered a lot of ground here, but I don't want to cut you off. Yeah, I mean, I think we're good. I think we uh, we hit on pretty much everything, herder top to bottom, and, and then Crab and Bembry, you know, who wins those minutes and how it looks and what kind of rotation they pull, or, you know, what kind of t- rotation they run, who gets pulled on, you know, at, at which times you know, whether they go more platoon or more sort of intermixing between the, the starters and the bench. Like, that's where Bembry's, 
sort of season will be defined. And it's unfortunate for him that it's, uh, that he doesn't have a ton of control over it unless he just, you know, becomes a good shooter and then you can't keep him off the floor. But, you know, I think Bembry's got the, the biggest floor ceiling difference on this team for just this upcoming year, just in terms of like, he could be the 13th man or he could be the fifth man. And it's just, you know, it's hard to, to really know exactly uh, where he's going to shake out. Yeah. Minutes wise could be a big split there, but yeah, plenty of Kevin Herter in the future. We will uh, definitely be seeing a lot of him and the other two guys that we talked about at length on this podcast. We will see. Um, as I said before, media day stuff starts on Friday with the coach and GM, and then Monday with all the players. I will have thoughts. If any big news breaks on Friday, I will might do an emergency pod Friday night. I'm not sure what that news will be. But uh, regardless, I will have a new podcast probably just with me um, after Monday's festivities, and then Jeff and I will finish – Sometime probably in the next week or so with our last of the five-part installment um, with uh, point guards, Trey Young, Evan Turner, and um, yeah, we'll Brandon talk. Brandon Goodwin. Oh yeah, I forgot about Brandon Goodwin. My apologies to Norcross High School's own Brandon Goodwin, who is going to be actually a pretty key part of that podcast. Um, all right, Jeff, yeah. we'll plug anything you'd like, my friend. We're an hour and 15 minutes in, so if anybody's still listening, they probably know who you uh, are and what you do, but please plug yourself anyway. Yeah, I would certainly think that at this point, if you've uh, if you're still here, then uh, you pretty much uh, know what you're tuning in for at this point. But uh, you can follow me on Twitter at JG Siegel at Early Bird Rights. Earlybirdrights.com is your home for all of my non-Hawks NBA stuff, uh, Hawks stuff at uh, Petrie Hoops, and you can find uh, some really interesting stuff coming out over the next few weeks over there and at uh, Early Bird Rights. So you know, keep it tuned to the the Twitter feeds, and you'll you'll find out about all that stuff. For sure, follow Jeff. We are wrapping up coverage over at peacefreehoops.com with player previews. I wrote about Reddish this week. We have uh, almost every player so far. We have the the big guns are still to come over the weekend before Media Day hits on Monday. And uh, check us out there. Follow me on Twitter if you'd like to at BT Roland. Follow the show at Locked on Hawks. Please subscribe to this podcast via the platform of your choice. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, all those places. And we will see everybody later on.